with other artists or with other writers or with other creative people around you. There really is no precedent for you to formulate what you do or what you love as a career for yourself. Welcome once again to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. In this podcast, I discuss a guest artist's practice through the lens of a piece of fiction chosen by them. My interest is in being able to open up access to art by bouncing between books, the artwork and the ideas shared between the two. Today I'm thrilled to be speaking with the very talented Charlie Peters, who has selected The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. If you make any physical thing in this world now, you have to understand that more people are going to see it online than in reality. Charlie Peters is an abstract painter with pinpoint balancing skills. Her paintings are like digital geometrics meets spray can and airbrush meets paint splashes meets big bank of pal colour. There is nothing shy about the work. There is nothing shy about Charlie. And while she talks of working on her lonesome onesome, I know from watching her work over the last few years that she is a really dynamic partner when it comes to collaborating with other artists. And we talk about one of those projects in this episode. You can also check out more on her website, charliepeters.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. Charlie Peters, welcome to Art Fictions. Thank you for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. We're here in Charlie's studio, surrounded by some work from a recent open studio, but we might hear a bit of disco music, a bit of hammering, a bit of drilling. It's the life of a studio in South Bermondsey. If you do hear that noise, that is the soundtrack to me making my paintings. That's what I hear every day when I'm in here. Exactly, so we can tune into some of your inspiration. Charlie's chosen the yellow wallpaper. It's a semi-autobiographical short story written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman in 1890 after a severe bout of postnatal depression. It was published in 1892 in the Boston-based New England magazine and tells the story of a woman and her physician husband, John, who take what might possibly be a magnificent house for three months so she can recover from her, in inverted commas, illness. Even though her husband, of apparently better authority, and her physician brother both agree there is nothing actually wrong with her. Her treatment is based on practical exercise, a good diet, and essentially confinement to her room. Critically, she is to have no stimulation, no interest in company, and she is absolutely forbidden to write. So she keeps a secret diary describing her growing obsession with her bedroom's hideous yellow wallpaper, which eventually envelops her in madness. The end. Of course, it wasn't an illness in inverted commas. It really was an illness, not just female hysteria. (laughs) Is that a fair description of the book? It is, on one level. It is, of course, a documentation of a woman's descent into insanity throughout the short story. It is um, an observation on the condition of marriage at that time and the, the restrictions facing women socially. There's other things going on in the book as well that I find really fascinating to do with colour, pattern, which of course resonate with some of the work that I make. But for me, it's also a great testament to creativity as a type of freedom, intellectual freedom, I suppose academic freedom, social freedom. It really speaks about the autonomous creative voice as something that is quite challenging and something that can lead to, particularly I think at that time, women finding themselves and having the confidence to be them. You know, it really does speak about the importance of being able to write to all, you know, other forms of creative freedom as well, to make things, to make things that exist in the world. And for me, that's the most interesting part of the book, is that it is about creativity, as much as it is about how society has defined how women should be living their lives. Touché. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does do all that. In fact, that brings me to Charlotte Perkins Gilman herself. She was a pretty amazing woman. 
She says she was a humanist, but she was actually an awful racist, which was pretty popular at the time to be an awful racist, though it doesn't diminish the other things that she achieved. And she certainly achieved a lot of things. She was born in Connecticut. She was raised in poverty by a single mother after her father left. And despite her father's absence, him and his female aunts were a major influence on young Charlotte. And these included Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Anyway, the point is that she was considered a utopian feminist, which I love <laughs> that idea. She wrote fiction, short stories, non-fiction. She was a poet. And despite really coming from very modest means, she was a social reform lecturer. So she toured America quite extensively for months at a time, giving lectures about how the domestic environment oppressed women. And she argued about Darwin's theories of evolution being presented only by the male perspective. And in fact, she does say at one point, I think you'll really like this, Charlie. There is no female mind. The brain is not an organ of sex. Might as well speak of a female liver. Yes. I do like that. that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, so much of that comes through in the book. Can I say as well, she wrote the book in response to her own experiences, which you've already mentioned. In the version of the book that I've got, there's a little introduction to mm. it. Once she'd written the yellow wallpaper, she actually sent it to the physician that had made her stay at home and be completely inactive, which in effect had made her much more unwell. And in the introduction, I just wanted to read this little bit. The rest cure, as it was called, it was also called neurasthenia, wasn't working for it. It was actually making her illness much, much worse. So in the end, she gave up on it and just carried on being active and making work and writing and being the, the badass woman that Charlotte Perkins Gilman appears to have been. But in the little introduction, she's just talked about how, you know, she gave up the rescue, it wasn't working for her. And she wrote, being naturally moved to rejoicing by this narrow escape, I wrote the yellow wallpaper and sent a copy to the physician who so nearly drove me mad. He never acknowledged it. The little book is valued by alienists and as a good specimen of one kind of literature, it has, to my knowledge, saved one woman from a similar fate, so terrifying her family that they let her out into normal activity and she recovered. But the best result is this. Many years later, I was told that the great specialist had admitted to friends of his that he had altered his treatment of neurasthenia since reading the yellow wallpaper. The book was not intended to drive people crazy, but to save people from being driven crazy, and it worked. I mean, I think it was considered that if women were overstimulated intellectually, that would make their mental health deteriorate. Like being, a, being an active participant in your own life would eventually lead to your downfall. Didn't the same thing happen to Virginia Woolf? Yeah, and yeah. it's very similar. There's like a similar kind of message yeah. to, you know, like room of one's own. There was, I think, a time in history where women weren't allowed to do very much at all. And inevitably that has very negative effects on people. Mm. Weirdly, as we're coming out of lockdown, with the potential of going back in, it felt like this was quite, uh, you know, an interesting book to reread when you approached me to do the podcast. I thought, well, you know, we've all been mm. in this situation. I think a lot of us have dealt with it in different ways. I've actually been fine. I'm used to being in a room by myself. I'm in this studio every day. But for other people, it's much more difficult to feel socially confined, you know, so it felt like quite a, a relevant book to look at again, maybe from a very contemporary perspective as well. Yeah, because isolation is obviously not very healthy for anybody. However, so many artists, we live largely in isolation. What's wrong with us? I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like I've been in training for lockdown for most of my life. Yeah, yeah. But the difference is, of course, mm. that during lockdown I've still been able to be creative and make things. Yeah. I've still yeah. had my own voice, which is a very different situation to the one described in the yellow wallpaper, which is, that's the part of her being that was removed from her. She writes in the first person perspective, but she's writing in secret and she makes, you know, no bones about that. The text is broken up into quite short little chunks of writing where she will sum up a paragraph by saying, I must stop now, John is coming up the stairs. You know, so she knew she shouldn't be writing. It was a secret and rebellious act of creativity. She does acknowledge her husband's 
intention to care for her, both her husband and her brother, who is also a physician, they agree that this is the best thing for her. So she has no sibling camaraderie. And then John's sister turns up to help. And she feels quite persecuted, I think, by her. I think she's so. spying on her. And so she has no female camaraderie. So she really is almost isolated within her isolation. It did make me think of, even though having a baby means that you are quite isolated anyway, you're kind of out and about in Australia because the weather is just nicer. Whereas I came here and, oh my gosh, you are climbing the walls with the reality of isolation, which in Radio 4's Women's Hour or whatever, it's discussed. Mm -hmm. It's written about in the newspaper. But here is this woman writing in you know, 1890, and we still have this terrible isolation of women with babies. Also, what's interesting about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, which must have been quite unusual at the time, is that for the sake of her sanity, she separated from her husband and took her daughter with her. So she became a single parent through complete choice for the sake of her own well-being. And being a single parent is difficult and challenging today, I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, at the start of the 20th century. That must have been really quite unprecedented, I think. Well, she was ostracised to a degree. I'm not sure she really cared because she just kept going with what she was doing and she stood up for herself. I mean, she was amazing in that sense. And I wonder if it's because she didn't really belong to that sort of polite society herself to begin with. So she didn't really value, perhaps, their ideas of that sort of behavioural code. She sent her daughter to live with her ex-husband, her daughter's father, because she felt, especially considering her own experience with her own father and his positive effect on her writing, that children should have time and influence by both parents equally. Mm. That seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? It does. I mean, and she was a real advocate for that, to sort of redefine the division of labour, but also the division of care and influence within, you know, the conventional family unit. That, of course, the father should be present for the child. And I think she uses the term that is something like to be part of her autobiography, to actually become part of how she understands her own life. That's right, yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting, I think, but completely right. But also, I imagine, quite challenging at that time. Yeah, hugely challenging. She had an unconventional lifestyle because she divorced a man and she was an unconventional mother. However, she kept going and good for her. Despite her erratic schooling, she was taken in and out of different schools and so it was very difficult for her to actually finish a year. In 1878, she enrolled in the Rhode Island School of Design, which is still a very prestigious educational institution for design. And it was partly funded by her father and partly by her own support via trade card artistry, which is like a business card. They're mm. all hand done and painting and tutoring. She really stood by herself. She supported herself. She was not from privilege. I think that's really interesting, that thing about where you come from. So if you haven't grown up with other artists or with other writers or with other creative people around you, there really is no precedent for you to formulate what you do or what you love as a career for yourself. And I can completely relate to that. You know, I don't come from a family where people have been to university. They're not readers, they're not writers, they're not artists. And it does change your perspective on the process of making for you, I think. For me, I do it because I've always done it. It's how I've always spent my time from a child, from being in my room painting and drawing. I can't, I have never considered doing anything else with my time other than this, ever. I just want to move on to pattern. So in the book, there are a number of fantastic quotes describing the pattern. And here's a couple of them. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard of contradictions. I mean, she does talk about strangled heads and bulbous eyes and the pattern being torturing and that it slaps you in the face, knocks you down, tramples on you. It's like a bad dream. 
The outside pattern is a florid arabesque reminding one of a fungus, <laughs> which is brilliant. It's an optic horror. And she says, this paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. So she starts personifying the passion. It becomes an alive creature. And of course, she eventually sees a woman in it and she eventually becomes that woman trapped in the wallpaper. But what really occurred to me, aside from all this horribleness, was design and the fact that Art Nouveau was really the end of the 1800s, start of the 1900s, which was actually slightly after her time at design school. And I wondered why it was that this new design that came out was something she took such a hatred to, Mm. because it was really moving away from the depiction of nature and I wonder if she didn't like that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I always think it's quite interesting that, you know, the, the pattern is almost like a character in the book. It's the, it's, the, it's the villain, isn't it? Yeah. And I think for me what's interesting is Perkins Gilman has almost used pattern to say something that is quite oppositional to how you would naturally find pattern. You know, pattern for a lot of people is quite soothing. The repetition of it helps you have an understanding of what you're looking at because there's a rhythm to it. But she completely turns that on its head. It's almost like she's making you feel uncomfortable about the thing that should be the most familiar. And again, that's something that happens within sort of domestic space. It's the basis of a lot of good horror stories. And the tone in which the book is written is almost within the kind of genre of kind of gothic horror as well. So I think she's using like almost like quite a familiar trope of turning, you know, domestic security on its head. But she's doing that way before anybody else probably did, you know, way before those great sort of horror films set in a domestic place like like The Exorcist, you know, where dreadful things happen in the bedroom. I think she's doing something quite challenging there. We think we know what a pattern is, but actually there's something else there that we haven't seen before. And one of the interesting things about the yellow wallpaper for me is that it's a story about the power of vision seeing things that are there or thinking there's things that aren't there and for artists that's a great thing you know I really I'm really fascinated with the illusionary capacity of something like painting to show you things that aren't there or make you think there's things that don't exist or they trick you you know there's a lot of visual trickery within the yellow wallpaper because of course there's not a real woman behind the pattern creeping around but essentially for her there is it's about what you see I hadn't thought of that in terms of the gothic horror, actually. It's so obvious now, but that's a really good point. And the wallpaper itself is in the nursery. So there's these beautiful rooms downstairs that have views to the garden. And her husband sticks her in this bloody awful nursery upstairs, which she just hates. I get the sense that there's just one, you know, stingy little window up there. There's not much at all. I think there's a point in the story as well where she says to her husband she'd like to move to another room and he offers to kind of refurbish the basement or the cellar. There's no offer to go into one of the rooms that she actually likes, which is interesting. It is like you're being sort of, you know, deprived of the comforts of your surroundings as part of this, you know, recuperation program, but based on someone else's agenda. Absolutely, absolutely, because he he says at one point that she is... Well, she has a role for him as his sweetheart, as as his dear person, as the person by his side. So then when she plummets into needing to be thought about in her own right, he can't cope. He has no head for that. And she's either, as you say, allocated to the nursery, which is infantilizing, or in the basement, you know, where... I don't know, is that where you put the crazy people or, you know, the the sort of rubbish? Yeah. I mean, he's intensely patronising throughout the book. Yeah. He sort of, you know, calls her diminutive names all the way through, little goose, little girl, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm not surprised she went mad with that kind of husband, but, you know, just leave that hanging there. (laughs) The room she's in is also quite mysterious. So, yes, it's described as the nursery, but for some reason it also says in the book that the bed is screwed down to the floor. So it's never quite disclosed if it is the nursery or if it is actually a room for mad people. She talks as well about there being teeth marks gnawed into the end of the bed. 
But again, you're not sure if by the end of the book that's her gnawing away at the bed, trying to get out of it. That's true. Because I think there's a point where she does say it's the children that have gnawed the bed. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not very clear who's gnawed the bed. But at one point she does talk about sinking her teeth into the bed and then it hurts her so she doesn't do it again. But you get the impression that it was well gnawed before then. That really throws the setting into question. Yeah, because it's described as this kind of beautiful country retreat at the start of the book. But then what country retreat has a bed that's screwed down? Is it somewhere that you send someone that's not very well? Or is it a beautiful country retreat that has a nursery with a screwed down bed? You know, there's a lot of questions and they kind of contribute to this sense of unease, like a kind of gothic horror story. Yeah. There's a lot of uncertainty about what you know and then what you have to bring to it and work out yourself. Just coming back to Charlotte Gilman for a moment, she not only went on lecture tours and wrote about women's issues, ethics, labour, human rights and social reform, she also wrote a book called Women and Economics and The Home, Its Work and Influence, which was an extension of women and economics. And it was all about the potential that women have to expand their work into the public sphere and that housework should be equally shared by men and women. I mean, imagine writing that at that time, 1898. And she wrote a book called What Diantha Did, which was about a woman who had a career and her land where women are leaders. So what I'm getting to in all this is this incredible passion that she had for her subject, her ideas of women being independent, you couldn't hold her back. And if there's one thing that's come across to me in your work, Charlie, and in art talks that I've seen you do, and ways that you have of presenting your work, it's your passion, enthusiasm, and your application. I'm completely in awe. Oh gosh, you don't have to be in awe of me. Ever. I want to be. We are, I mean, I love it that you want to be. That's great. Um, and thank you very much. But you know, I don't expect awe from anybody. I was looking through just the things that you've done in 2019 and I'm probably missing some things but the standout pieces for me were the ITB branding for International Women's Day and also I come from a very dedicated skateboarding family so the design of the skate decks for the House of Bands was another (laughs) highlight. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. But I want to come to your hospital rooms commission because I think that just so beautifully ties in with the book in the sense that this is a wall painting which looks like a sort of fluid origami meets digital in the tribunal room which is in Bluebed House which is a forensic referral mental health unit in Southampton and I want to hear about how that came about. So I've been aware of the work of Hospital Rooms, which is a really brilliant charity that commissions artists to make new work in mental health units across the UK. Secure locked mental health units, so they have inpatients that actually reside there for a certain amount of time until they become well enough to move on. So I did have a discussion with Hospital Rooms about working on a project with them, which I was really, really excited about. It took a few years for the project to come into being. Blibbert House is a children's unit. The young people that are there are between the ages of 11 and 18. I didn't even realise that you could be sectioned to be in a mental health unit at the age of 11. So for me, working with the people that were living in Blibbert House was really life-changing. It taught me a lot about how different people live their lives. The unit is based in the New Forest. It's a really beautiful part of England. It's very leafy and green. But without any doubt, it is institutional. What's really great about the project is we were able to propose a work in a space that we thought would be really good for us to make work in. I was really interested in the tribunal room. For starters, tribunal room as a thing sounds terrifying to me. It's where in the hospital they hear section appeals, they do video conferences there. It's not in a clinical area, so it's not a ward, but it's probably one of the most used spaces by both staff and the patients that live at Bluebird House. It's also the room that is sometimes seen by people that aren't even in the hospital. It's seen in video conferencing. So for me, it's almost like the maximum impact room. It's where 
even if you're not in the hospital, you might see the tribunal room. And I also love, you know, I'm very much in love with the notion of like the screen, but I make things by hand. I'm completely digitally literate and I'm going to be the first person to admit that. But I love the romance of the screen and how stuff looks on the screen. So the process of working with hospital rooms on the project is that you would, you would do a site visit to the hospital, you then run a workshop with the service users. So I ran a workshop with the young people. We made some collages. Obviously, they can't have knives or scissors within the hospital, so I had to prepare a lot of work before I went. The young people were folding things, screwing things up. But just looking at the work they'd made after, it was much more physical and sculptural than I had expected it to be. And I wanted to feed some of that energy back into the wall painting that I made. The room itself, when I arrived, was pretty grim. There was a disgusting yellow wall. Someone had painted one of the walls bright, acrid yellow. Isn't that funny? I've only just thought of that. And although it was disgusting, and the member of staff showing us around the hospital said, we hate that yellow wall, I thought, yeah, but you know what? Someone's made an effort to add colour. There's a sort of understanding that colour can be something that changes the mood. So I thought, I'm going to keep that yellow wall. That's the start for my painting. But then the colour palette from that was then to work with sort of two secondary colours on the walls next to it. But to then have something that looked a little bit like a kind of fractured rainbow along the back wall. And that, that sense of fractured space came directly from the folded collages that the young people had made in the workshop. So for me, the painting, the idea for the painting was developed completely in dialogue with what the young people had made with me, which I thought was sort of good and proper. It's quite an active, dynamic, lively piece of work. It takes up the whole space. You know, I wanted it to be like a painting that you walk into. In fact, you explained that. I'm just remembering now, you explained that at some point, in a really dynamic way, like a rainbow had come in. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted it to be. Yeah, I wanted it to feel like a, a rainbow had like rushed through the room and exploded on oh, that back that. wall. Yeah. yeah, I wanted it to have energy and light in there. You know, mm. these places, they don't have many windows. We talked about that a little bit earlier in the yellow wallpaper. Interestingly, when I spoke to one of the occupational therapists after the work had been installed, a few months after, he said that he'd seen a young person that was finding it very difficult to concentrate and focus. He said that he saw her tracing the outline of the triangles across the wall for quite a long time with her eyes back and forth. And he said it had a real calming effect on her which I thought was amazing. I mean, and that is something that I, I would never have considered. You know, you hope you make work that people can engage with, that gives them something, that takes them somewhere. But I suppose I've never made work in a kind of hospital environment. So it's a whole new load of considerations for me. And for me, that was a really good sort of affirmation that I've made work in, in the right space for me, for my work. And that it was contributing to the environment, which is like a difficult place for people to be at probably the most challenging point in their lives. I think in all abstract art, it is very easy to think of it as decorative. And in some ways, I don't really think that's a problem for somebody looking at it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the artist is coming from. So can you tell me a bit about where you're coming from that's not about the decorative? Yeah, I mean, and it's a bit of a trigger word, I think. Things like decorative pattern. They're words that I kind of react against quite strongly. There's just like an inherent perception of me that they are quite, um, I suppose, reductive terms. When you think about painting in terms of it being a rigorous intellectual pursuit, as well as something that gives visual pleasure. But things like decorative, to me, they are related directly to the domestic sphere, to cushions, to carpets. I know that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but for me, that's why I would like to separate that word or that sensibility in particular to my work. However, I do accept that an abstract painting can be seen as decorative. It's not necessarily saying anything. There's no message within it inherently. So all you see is its visual form. However, I wouldn't want to be making something deliberately decorative. There has to be challenge and contradiction and weirdness and new knowledge within it, if that makes sense. It needs to be doing something active. It's coming back to that thing in the yellow wallpaper again about activeness, passivity. I don't want to make passive paintings. I want them to be challenging. They are so far from passive. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Good. You've definitely achieved that. 
When I think of decorative, I think of William Morris wallpaper, for instance, which personally I think is really beautiful, that's deliberate, which I think is very much part of decorative, but it's also, as you say, in the domestic environment. And you might want to just talk me a little bit through your process because there is no planning in Mm. your work. It doesn't have that deliberate side of its process so it's very far away from design and it starts with a ground and you've got all sorts of levels of masking and revealing that go through right to the very end of the process of making. Do you want to just talk me through that a little bit? Yeah I will do and interestingly you've just used a really good word so for me just going back to decoration it's the lack of design that for me removes it from a decorative process. Something is decorative if it is designed it's well considered and you're following a plan to make something for a specific end goal that's completely the opposite of how I I would make a painting. So yeah, I always start by putting a flat colour down on a canvas with no understanding of what I'm going to do next. And I make decisions about colour at that stage quite intuitively. Is it going to be hot? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be like a mid-tone grey, which I will then add something to? So everything starts as flat, flat colour. I use uh, acrylic paints, so that's really good for getting nice, flat, solid colours. So I always put like a layer of acrylic paint down. And then the next thing I will do is sit and look at that for a little while and then vary the tone or the hue across the canvas. So the second layer is blends of colour or gradients of colour. That for me then starts to suggest a kind of pictorial space. So where you vary like tone or colour, for me you start to see depth within the canvas. I'm just looking at a painting or a couple of paintings here in your studio. So one goes from a sort of yellow in the bottom right hand corner up to a turquoise or an aquamarine up in the left hand corner. Another one goes from blue to purple to orange to pink. The kind of aqua colour is actually the ground and so the yellow and this kind of more acrid green is where I blended colour on top. The painting here that has like the purple, the pink, the orange and the blue, that was just a flat grey ground on that one. So I've added a lot more colour to that one. Where I'm adding different colours, I'm not really thinking about what those colours are. You know, I'm just using someone else's pre-mixed colour. And what I want to do is put something down without overthinking it that I can then respond to. Okay, so you're not looking at that white empty canvas anymore. Yeah, because that's the scary bit, isn't it? Because there's just like a million (laughs) possibilities. And if you think about your work, well, for me, if I think about what I'm going to make before I do it, I probably will talk myself out of doing anything. I'm not a good thinker. I'm a much better doer. Yeah, so I would rather just put something on the canvas, knowing that it's my responsibility to make it right, to make a good painting out of whatever I do. And that's it. It does feel a bit like a battle. It's like I'm controlling chaos every time I try to make a painting. But within that, there's the get out clause that if I do something that I don't like, I can paint over it or that I can respond to it. And every new layer that I put on a painting, I'm trying to make it more and more resolved, more balanced, feel more complete. But starting from absolute zero, there's no understanding of what the image component of the painting is going to be until right at the end. And so how do you choose all these shapes and objects and all the imagery that goes on top of it? Some of it is splashes of paint, drips of paint. Some of it is very formal shapes like squares and rectangles. I'm looking at one at the moment that's got triangles and spheres on it and another one that looks like it's got little pills. And you've also talked about jarring that one thing will jar against another, which I think is a really good description because the big swathes of loose paint are absolutely at odds with these very formal geometric shapes. I mean, I think that word, the decision word, is something that I find really, really difficult, which is why I always work on more than one painting at once. I can't put all my energy into one thing, otherwise I would drive myself mad and exhaust myself. It would have like way too much stuff going on in it and would look dreadful. So I like to have more than one thing so I can kind of distill the amount of energy for painting that I have across several canvases at once. With these two that you're looking at here, so after I did the kind of blends of colour, the third layer was these kind of splashes of paint. And honestly, I was actually really pleased with how perfect the gradient of colour were on these two canvases. 
But again, for me, that's quite stressful. That's like having a white canvas again. It's like it looks beautiful, it could be finished. But I don't just want to do blends of colour. That's not, that's not enough. You know, it's not enough challenge or enough thought or enough labour or enough, uh, enough of me in it. Often in canvases, I have quite strong dynamic geometric shapes that might move across the canvas where I would have like repeated geometric forms within them. I wanted to capture that kind of energy, but without using that. Again, if something becomes too familiar to me, I don't want to keep doing it. So I wanted to have that amount of energy, that amount of movement, but do it in a different way. So for me, big splashes of colour, which I would move around the canvas with like a big palette knife or I have a thing that is like a tool for like applying vinyl lettering onto walls. Things that just move the paint that or I can't control it is really good for me because it stops me overthinking. Until I get to a point where I can start to rationalise something that I can see compositionally, mm. I need to have material there that I can keep responding to. And it is really scary at the point at which these were like big canvases with just paint thrown on them. I hadn't got a clue what I was going to do with them next. But I also love that challenge. Mm. I love being able to do difficult stuff in art and life. You know, I'm an overachiever. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sad to say that. And then after that, when it gets to a certain stage where there's enough visual information for me to see a way forward, I will then do something else on top of it. And the something else on top of it will be decided often by me sitting on the floor in the studio with a scrap of paper and just doing almost like automatic drawings over and over again of different configurations of things that could sit on top of what I've already got that would then break up the composition or add something to it or draw your eye to a particular part of the painting that I thought was quite exciting. A lot of what I do I think is just playing with visual language or um, putting impossible things together and making them work. It's almost like a type of penance maybe, I don't know, I feel like I'm in here and I have to make it work. <laughs> Which we, you know, well, let's not talk about my Catholic childhood, but maybe that's oh discovery there, yeah. You also mentioned earlier weirdness and the idea of weirdness, that you like weirdness. And I was thinking of your collaboration that you did with Tobias Revel and Wesley Goatley as part of the London Design Festival last year, where you took, I'm going to be really technical here and say you took a screen kind of machine looking thingy <laughs> and put it in front of a brilliant green painting and the machine then searched on Google for meaning in the colour green. Can you describe that work? Yeah, and I would just like to say that I didn't put a machine thingy in front of the painting. <laughs> I made a painting, but it was in consultation and collaboration with Tobias and Wesley, who were both, I think they would probably describe themselves as critical designers slash artists. They often do make work together. Very technical digital work that I, I'm never going to even pretend to understand what they do. The London Design Festival exhibition that it was part of was called Emergence and it was looking at how artists and designers have some kind of social responsibility within the work that they make. I'm, you know, for me that's quite, um, in many ways I suppose in the studio, that feels like quite an alien concept. I come in here, I sit by myself, I make my work. I don't really think of it in terms of communicating something or having a responsibility outside of something that is aesthetic not decorative, as we've already said, but aesthetic and rigorous and interesting intellectually. But for me, the only way that I could kind of approach a project where there was like meaning in it was to kind of interrogate where that meaning came from. So I suggested that I would make a green abstract painting because green, of course, is synonymous with ecology. And also within the history of abstraction, green is not a very popular or common colour. You know, we do associate it with the landscape. There's not much like pure green pigment as well. Obviously, a lot of green paint is derived from either blue or yellow. So in a way, it's almost like fake green as well, which I quite like. I quite like the contradictions within that. But the way in which Tobias and Wesley then interacted with the painting that I've made was to build something that was essentially a robot that was suspended on a frame, like a sculptural frame that fitted around the canvas. The robot was fed with information from Google searches for the colour green. Yeah, so the, the robot thing that scanned the painting, it had a camera in it and a screen of its own. And it had like a split screen. So the top screen that you would see on something that looked like an iPad would show an area of my painting underneath it. And then the bottom of the screen would show the robot thinking through images from the database that it had for the colour green and finding the closest match. 
So in a way, it's trying to find real world meaning within abstract form and also saying something, I suppose, about the way we see the colour green and its cultural associations. It actually found quite a lot of references to, I suppose, like graphic design or, or campaigns for the ecology, like sort of where maybe geometric forms have been used as a shorthand for things like wind turbines, but also a lot of naturally occurring things in the world, like leaves, things that I certainly wouldn't look at or feel inspired by, actually, as an artist. And it was quite interesting to see those kind of patterns emerging. Well, I think it's especially interesting to think of your painting throwing up images of other images that are shorthand for a lot of other things because in a way that's what painting at its core does I mean it does lots of things but that's one of the things it does it's it's a shorthand for a hundred different ideas that that might be swilling around in your brain but then that leads to a whole lot of other ideas for whoever's looking at it no, but I think it's interesting to see in that work, almost like thrown back at me, I use shorthands for like abstraction all the mm. time. You know, a lot of the things that I use are very familiar tropes from you know, the history of abstraction. But then when, to, when you see then a computer throwing back referential stuff yeah. based on your referential stuff, and it does sort of question those things with meaning and truth. And also visual literacy, like how do we learn what these things mean, what these symbols and signs are? They're very ingrained in us. For me, that was a really interesting project and it kind of made me think about painting in maybe a slightly less introspective way, you know, because it really made you think that actually within the marks that we make and the motifs that we use, they speak to many different people in many different ways. And interesting what happened in this project as well is that I learned a little bit about machine intelligence and it surprised me. I expected the robot, the computer, you know, like the hard drive, to have a brain or a capacity to think or process information that was very different to mine. But of course it's not. It was looking for very formal visual signifiers in the way that I think I see things visually. I don't use my logical brain when I'm in the studio. I'm exploring things with my eyes and my hands and in a way the computer was doing the same thing. I was surprised that our logics were fairly closely aligned. I found that really fascinating and hugely surprising. So in a way computers are very limited because they're just made by us. Well yeah exactly and another thing is of course the the data that the, the computer, the robot had, had been fed to it by Wesley. So you know it, it had been fed by a human. I want to move on to colour, and the colour in the book is described as being repellent, almost revolting, a smouldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight, dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulphur tint in others. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw, not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. So she's talking about this yellow and orange. And one thing that struck me of her descriptions is she's distinguishing it from a yellow Mm. we find in nature like a buttercup to this design. And actually the yellows and the oranges of Art Nouveau and Art Deco, I absolutely adore them. (laughs) That brings me to the extremely diverse range of colours you use in your paintings, Charlie. What always interests me is people say that I use a lot of colour, but I never think I do. I think actually I use colour fairly strategically once I get into like the top layers. As I say, I think I respond to colour quite intuitively. I don't understand chemically or technically how it works. I just do it. I love colour. I love light. I love how colour makes you feel when you look at it. I mean, it's a very emotive thing to me. Interestingly, the colour I paint with the least is probably yellow because it is so translucent and I find that really difficult to work with, particularly as I work in layers. I don't always know what to say about colour, actually, because I just do it. I just put stuff together. I think that's completely okay as well. But you do have a great fondness for frog tape. I do have a huge fondness for frog tape. You know what, it was really difficult making that green painting we were just talking about with frog tape, because putting green tape on a green painting 
makes it absolutely <laughs> impossible to see what the hell you're doing. And also, as soon as you put green frog tape on a green painting, it makes the green you've just painted look wrong. Because obviously colour is very relative, you only see it next to the colour you've already put. Mm. And the green frog tape would make the painting I'd just done look turquoise or look too yellow, when actually it wasn't, it was green. It was quite difficult, actually, technically to do that, and I'd never thought about that before. But you're so, I understand you're so dedicated to frog tape that you don't necessarily, well you don't use other types of stenciling to mask, uh, say circles for instance, or your spheres or your grids, they're all hand made out of strips of frog tape. Yeah. I think I, that's incredible. <laughs> I do have some tape um, that has that you can do curves with, but I don't like it. It's not mm. as good. So yeah, for, mm. for cutting out, like for masking circles or round shapes, I will still put strips of frog tape down on a cutting mat, and then I will cut the shapes out of that. So with a, for doing circles, I will use a compass cutter. But then other things that I do, so for like these kind of pill-shaped ones that we were just talking about, I will sometimes as well just put tape directly on the canvas and cut directly on the canvas, which you have to be quite careful to do that. So one of the things that's always difficult to understand about abstract painting, well, I suppose about every painting, but certainly abstract painting, I think is when it's finished. How do you know when yours are finished? I think that's what a lot of the process is, is creating a balance. Mm. And for me, I keep going until... This probably sounds really strange, but it's almost like a kind of physical reaction when I think it's finished. It's like I can just kind of exhale. A lot of the time when I'm painting, it feels like I'm holding my breath because I don't know what's coming next. Most of the time I'm painting, most of the painting is covered up. It has paper over it or it has tape on it or it's covered with bits of plastic so I don't transfer paint to areas where I don't want it to be. But for me, every time I take the wrapping off, I'll stand and I'll look at the painting and maybe sit with it over a couple of days. And then when I feel like it's just kind of done, like it's almost like I can push it away from me. It's quite a physical feeling, which maybe that sounds really bonkers, I don't know. I quite like that idea yeah, that it's it, a physical it's thing. A, yeah. It's a feeling. Because the whole process sounds very physical. Yeah, It is, you know, it's a completely physical thing, you know. And for me, that's how I know. It's almost like a relief that I feel like it's just settled that the chaos of, you know, like the days or weeks of me not knowing what this thing is and the energy that's gone into making decisions in inverted commas, because I'm not sure how logical or rational decision making is actually in the studio. But all that time and energy and confusion, and it is a bit of a head fuck making paintings and not knowing where they're going. It's exhausting. But once it feels like I've taken that layer of masking off and it just feels like, I can just breathe, it's done, it feels complete. Though it's not all just painting, it's also drawing. You've done a lot of drawing and there's sketchbook drawing of course, but you've also done very formal drawings as well. And for some people drawing leads on to painting or painting is an extension of their drawing. But for you, it's quite a different process, drawing and painting. These days, the drawing I do is more like in between the layers of paint. And that's more like automatic drawing. I'm putting shapes down on a piece of paper until I find patterns emerging throughout it or repeated forms. And then it'll be like, oh, there must be something there that makes me feel that that's the right thing to do. I do make a lot of works on paper, though, which I don't think they're necessarily drawings. They're more like small paintings. So I often use paint on on paper as a way of making like smaller versions of what I'm doing in the studio or exploring new concerns alongside the canvases. And why did you move away from drawing then? I think when I was doing more drawing I was probably trying to unlearn some of the bad habits that had become part of what I was doing. I did um, a PhD in fine art theory and practice which I finished in 2006 during which point I think I probably hated my work the most. It became very academic, very overthought, very stodgy. I thought I wrote myself into a corner, but I got so far into my PhD, I just had to carry on and get it done. And after I'd finished that, I didn't really feel like I had any work to make anymore. I was knackered and I felt bored by myself. I felt bored by the work I was making. So after that, I made nothing for about maybe three years. I didn't even feel the need to make anything. Then slowly the urge to make stuff came back, but I knew that I couldn't begin where I'd left off. So I started by drawing again, 
literally just the most simple sort of pared down way of making work for me, which was just like a pencil and paper and straight lines, just drawings made of one line, then two lines, then three lines. And it felt like I just let go of a lot of that learned baggage that I'd kind of been carrying around me the whole time that I was writing quite academically about what I was doing. And it really helped. It really helped me make work that felt like it was more honest. It was more coming from a much more intuitive place. And that felt much more real to me. And I drew for several years, mostly yeah, monochromatic things, but I did start to introduce like thematic colours. So I did red, green and blue, like RGB or CMYK. So pa- colour palettes that I'd found in the real world, if you like. But then eventually I started using paint to draw with. And then from then I started to use much more colour. So, you know, it's quite a huge shift within about maybe three or four years of my work of going from doing something that was predominantly kind of grey and monochromatic to something that uses colour quite instinctively and I think quite dynamically. So for me, I'm at a point now where this feels like the work I should be making now. I think that's astonishing to go through a whole PhD and come out like in a bit of a slump. I was in an art funk. Like I hated yeah. it, honestly. And I knew that from quite early on. But you know, I won't I never give up. So it's like I've got to get this fucking thing finished wow. and do it. You know what as well? You do realise as you go through life that you can redefine yourself. Nothing you are not that person that something defines you as. You can shift and change and that's healthy. Mm. So I knew that I could get the PhD done, take a breath And eventually, when it felt right, I came back to being the artist that I probably feel more comfortable being. And I like that I feel more honest in terms of how I talk about my work now. It feels right. Doing a PhD helped me to write a lot better, I have to say. But I will never get over that horrible guilt I felt for six years of not reading enough. Like that massive pile of books that were stacking up by the side of my bed. Although that emptying out and sort of starting again literally one line after the other does remind me somewhat of Agnes Martin or Agnes Martin, however you want to pronounce her name. And you look to Agnes Martin as uh, some sort of influence or? Well, I love her work. I love how her work was all over the place as well for a very long time until she found the grid. It feels like she had a revelationary moment where she found herself through the process of making. And I can completely relate to that, Mm. you know. Mm. I feel like my brain is full of great stuff that I love from art history, but also from like popular culture. And it's hard to assimilate all that stuff into something that feels reasonable for you to deal with for your practice. But it felt like when she found the grid, she really locked into something that kind of freed her up to make stuff that was super focused, but still explored lots of different things around one theme. And I love her writing as well. You know, she her writing is like automatic writing. It's almost like stream of consciousness. And I think although you can see her work in quite rigid terms of it being very linear or very much around the grid, it is not it's not formal in the same ways that a lot of hard-edged grids are. There's an awful lot of sensitivity in terms of how she makes those paintings that I love. You know, for me it's a really nice contrast between what we were saying about the yellow wallpaper, you think you know what you're seeing, but actually when you look at it, there's something else there. Well, especially her early grids, they're all done by hand. And she was one of the great minimalists. And by that, I don't mean that there wasn't much going on on the canvas, because there was that. But that in itself has become a domestic term, as in less of, less furniture, less... Mm clutter etc but hers was more about an existentialism and the work taking on its own reality and something about body and mind the body and mind thing i think is something that resonates Mm. and it is that thing that feels like getting the right balance between something that is considered but also honest and true and comes from a kind of non-rational place as well that and that is a battle you know that's quite difficult to do that I really love what Agnes Martin says Um, I can't remember the exact quote but it's something to do with like emptying out your logical brain or emptying out your rational mind in order to make work you need to make work with an empty mind and I completely relate to that And actually, maybe that's me responding to the PhD experience of having to think way too much and just feeling like I was in this little box 
you know, in, with the screw down bed kind of thing. You know, that's what it felt like. That's where I relate to Agnes Martin. I think she was a real trailblazer as well. She mm. was a real sort of individual and did things in her own way. She's very well read in terms of like Zen Buddhism and existentialism. I'm not. And I'm very happy actually to say that I just make things because they feel good. That's to a degree quite surprising actually the extent to which you feel that because you are a very good writer and you wrote a piece for Instant Loveland which is an abstract art online platform. I think the title of this piece clearly depicts that sort of enthusiasm and passion that I was talking about earlier. Living Colour, Dead Husbands and Other Stories. Go Girlfriend, your piece on Lee Krasner where you had a conversation with two other people, Claire Price and... Claire Price, Alison Goodyear and EC. That's right. Three other yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that piece in itself on Lee Krasner is not only very informed in terms of your own writing, but it's also completely fascinating about Lee Krasner and the history of women in not just abstract art, but also in art in its own right, that she was seen as an adjunct to somebody else who I'm not going to name <laughs> <laughs> on purpose. And uh, in an interview in her show called Living Colour at the Barbican, fairly recently, you get to the end of the show and she is asked what her husband is working on in an interview about her work, mind you, which is incredibly rude. And she says, oh, I don't know what the fuck he was working on. You know, I was worried about myself. I had my own problems. She said it just like that. And uh, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so Lee Krasner, big fan of Lee Krasner as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought she was such a cool woman. When you hear her being interviewed, she's so smart and funny and feisty. You know, and she battled against a lot of stuff in her career. She was generally, you know, not acknowledged as being one of like the first wave of abstract expressions, but she was certainly there. And at the time that she met the person that we're not going to mention who became her husband, she was actually much more accomplished as an artist than he was. You know, it's hugely frustrating that things kind of panned out the way they did. But to, you know, to her credit, she was the most resilient artist and had an amazing way, I think, of just kind of spreading herself out across different genres of work she was definitely not someone that had a singular vision and she very much believed that you know your, your creative spirit can can move and shift and change direction quite a lot and her work has so much energy yeah she definitely has that way of shifting and changing and in some of her work and I think in her best work that shifting and changing happens in one canvas in that Barbican exhibition there was also a figurative painting that she made when she was quite young she's standing in the foreground of a wood so there's a whole lot of trees and they're all very regimented and it reminded me of soldiers it reminded me of a whole lot of I'm just going to say characters that are falling into line and then here she is forefronting them with all these angles, the angle of her canvas, the angle of her brush, the bend in her arm, everything is at an angle. And I just think that's what she saw. Before you even get into all the abstract work, that's a really sophisticated way of looking, in yeah. my view. And so strong as well, just such a strong vision. Yeah. And you also talked about these artists being, in a way, learnt influences, uh, these abstract expressionists and hard-edge painters from post-war America right up to pop art. But there's also, you've also got lots of personal influences, which is really at the heart of where you started, like Transformers and cartoons and video games <laughs> and album covers. Yeah, I mean, this is something I don't hear enough artists talking about, honestly. And I think it's really fascinating, actually, when you start to unpick where your visual sensibilities come from. So certainly when I went to art school and would be talking to my tutors about the stuff that I loved and I want to make work that looks like this, you know, Judas Priest album cover or <laughs> this fucking great picture of a robot. And they'd be like, oh, Charlie, you can't say that out loud. Yeah. You know, you need to go to the library and find some proper references. So yeah, and luckily I did go to the library and I found that there is this amazing period in particularly like in America from the 50s to the 80s where stuff is like loud and graphic and brash 
and exciting. So I love Amex, I found hard edge painting, California hard edge stuff. I, I love pop, you know, I love all those things that kind of look strangely familiar, very kind of urban and gritty. For me, that's it. I, I have completely lack any kind of like sensitive approach to visual imagery. I love stuff that's in your face. It's loud, it's ballsy, you can't avoid it. That's me, right? At the same time, if I'm brutally honest about where I'm coming from in terms of the stuff that has fed my sensibility from a young age, it is sitting in front of the TV as a kid watching cartoons. I used to love drawing robots and spaceships and Star Wars. I grew up in a city in Birmingham, um, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. It was a shithole. It was all concrete, but, you know, also lit by neon lights. There was mess, there was noise everywhere. I spent a lot of my childhood indoors feeling fairly miserable, I have to say. But the thing I did do was draw a lot in my room and completely inspired by cartoon characters and stuff that I was seeing in films. When I got older, as a teen, yeah, I sort of, you know, Birmingham has a big, like, metal scene, so I was really into, like, airbrush art and, like, you know, the graphic design that you would find on, yeah, album covers. And I had a job uh, after I'd finished my A-levels when I was doing my foundation course. I used to paint the backs of leather jackets in the back of a record store <laughs> in the Ballroom Shopping Centre in Birmingham. That's brilliant. I know. And, yeah. and what I think now in my work is I can actually see all those influences in a kind of really interesting kind of like mega mix of stuff. And I say to people, embrace those bad influences because it's what will make you unique. It'll what will give you your own voice. But you're saying in your teaching that you find with students they are more open about that now. I think that's the internet though. I think because we see everything now on a kind of level playing field. So you can see within the same frame of reference on your screen a window that has, you know, a Jackson Pollock, but it also has, I don't know, some weird like sci-fi illustration. And I think that's different probably to how you or I used to see stuff. I think the way we see the world now, it's so much stuff all at once. You don't have to make those distinctions anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like the high art, low art argument is over now. I because think so. everything, as you say, could be seen on a split screen. And this is you talking while also wearing trainers that look like they're from hot rod cars. Yeah, they're cool, <laughs> aren't they? I don't know, but I think as well, you can't, even with like, like art writing, you can't keep writing in the past. You can't just keep writing about art history in the way that everyone's already written about it. You have to bring in new stuff, otherwise you're never going to say anything new. And for me, that's really exciting. So, you know, the piece that I just wrote for Instant Lovelands that was based around Ava Hess's mechanical drawings is also looking at notions of like binary opposition and cyborgs. And for me, that's actually where art writing becomes exciting. Again, it's like in painting where you're mashing up lots of different cultural references all in one go. Mm. So there's quite high end, you know, maybe sort of feminist theory that I might be referring to in that argument. But I'm also talking about everyday stuff to do with robots too. Yeah, you, yeah, you're one of the few people that's been able to talk about Eva Hess and Simone de Beauvoir and contemporary artists and robots in the same article. <laughs> and I'm so pleased that I've done that. <laughs> so where can we see your work in the next 12 months or so? So one of the next things I'm doing will be an online exhibition in quite an interesting online space called 405 Gallery. It's like a kind of simulation of a gallery space rather than some online shows which are like viewing rooms. So it's kind of like, it looks like a physical gallery, but it's not. But what's really cool about what I'm doing there is that in a virtual gallery that doesn't really exist, there's a blank wall and I'm going to make a physical painting on paper, which is actually what's in the studio here, mm. which will then be superimposed into there as like a, if you like, a propositional wall painting. So I'm quite excited to do that. Again, I like the leap from something quite physical to something that will only exist on screen. So I'm really looking forward to that and really looking forward to somebody actually taking on board the space that people are looking into. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? And in a way, that's where I think lockdown has been a good thing. It's made us much more familiar with seeing things online and seeing that as a potential new way to see paintings. And I think you have to, if you make any physical thing in this world now, you have to understand that more people are going to see it online than in reality. Mm. 
you know, you're screwed if you don't acknowledge that. Mm. So I think spaces like 405 Gallery are really exciting. Also what's really good is it's a show that could never actually happen in real life because he's, show, he's showing some work that's not actually available. It's stuff that's been sold or that might be in other spaces. So it's a completely like hypothetical show. And I love the impossibility of that. Then other things that are coming up, um, I have a work in a couple of auctions. So something at House and Worth, which is a fundraiser for hospital rooms. And also the skateboard that you talked about is actually part of a fundraising auction that House of Vans has organised with the Auction Collective for uh, raising money for Centrepoint, the homeless charity okay. based okay. in London. And I have a couple of other physical shows that are postponed to 2021. I actually have quite a lot of things on my to-do list. I bet you do. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, what are you reading now? Well, um, I'm not sure if I've mentioned, I'm not actually a very big reader. Um, So God knows why you've invited me on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But one book I am looking at at the moment, it's predominantly uh, got pictures in it rather than a lot of text. But um, I've got this recently and it's so cool it's a book called do you compute and it's basically a compendium of advertising of how things like home computers and video games and early digital technology has been marketed to a home audience from the 50s up until the 90s and it's really a fantastic book mainly because it's got great pictures in it so obviously if i choose a book to look at these days i want something i can just pick up and see great cool stuff in it and although I'm really fascinated with like the language of computing and the digital aesthetic, there seems to be a theme of the geometric abstract throughout this book that is being used as a shorthand for technological progress. And I suppose that's nothing new if we look at kind of like Russian constructivism. It's always been there. But it's completely magnified from the point at which like computers became something that was like a mainstream thing. And also what I love about this book is it feels like it's quite nostalgic in a way. A lot of these images are very kind of strangely familiar. So I'm looking here at an advert for a Commodore 64, which was made in 1984. So it's a familiar type of advert that I probably did see as a kid when I was first discovering what computers were. But also they still speak of this great kind of sense of like utopian progress. They're so exciting as images. You know, so I love that you're looking back, but within the imagery itself, it's looking forward. It has a beautiful cover. But what struck me when we were just flicking through the book before was the god-awful beige of all the computers. And the designers clearly of computers did not go to art school, (laughs) compared with the fantastic rainbow colours in the advertising and all that beautiful text work from people who clearly did go to art school. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, I don't know why these things were so dull to look at and so, like, under-designed. It's all the kind of advertising bump that made them palatable and sort of more human. It also comes back to the book in a way because the woman in the book is trapped in a room with this design that she loathes in a colour that she loathes. And it shows us how we're ingesting so much of, let's say, digital imagery and advertising imagery, and then that comes out in some way in our own expressions and in our own artworks. And that is one of the things that makes it absolutely critical that art should have a voice. Otherwise, everything is just a presentation by corporations. You know, we have to be able to have a myriad of voices out there. Charlie Peters, thank you so much for being on Art Fictions. You've been a wonderful guest. Oh, no, thank you. I've had such a good time talking to you. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. I love doing difficult stuff. I would love to pretend that I'm an expert in all these things that I do, but I know very little about colour theory or geometry or all those kind of languages that I use.